0: Every November, faces of men around the world start to take on a very distinct look. They start to grow mustaches or mows for Movember, helping to raise awareness for men's health and mental health issues, something my guest today is very familiar with. I'm Kelly Youngstrom, and this is Keep Yourself Well. My guest today is a mental health advocate with over a decade of experience as a professional speaker and wellness coach. Alan Kaler has persevered through the lifelong effects of mental illness, addiction, trauma, and suicide. He's now turned his challenges into triumph and the proud husband and father of four has built a successful career, helping people rise above their challenges and find inner strength. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Callie, for having me. (laughs) For those who don't know, Alan has been so generous to record with me at 6 p.m. on a Friday, so I appreciate you even more. And I always kick off the conversation with the very loaded question of how do you keep yourself well? Yeah, how do I keep myself well? Well, I'll tell
1: you this, Callie. What's interesting is Friday, six o'clock, this is what we're doing, whereas the old me, Fridays were all about drinking, (laughs) right? Like it was my life was just immersed in addictions and destructive behavior for so long. So first of all, I'm very grateful to be able to be in the place that I am today and have this conversation with you on a Friday night. And the well piece, that is a loaded question, but I think that I have learned the importance of what some people would call selfish, which really is self-respect, meaning you have got to Put yourself first learning how to set boundaries how to say no people don't like the word no but figuring out what it is that i need to be well to have peace and ultimately a level of happiness kind of that inside out approach has been key and i guess furthermore oh i spent most of my life having no relationship with self i have always had a hard time with love i've had a hard time with loving self. I've had a hard time with loving others and learning how to have a relationship with myself and not needing substances or distractions has been a journey, but it has absolutely been key towards
0: my wellness. I mean, what a amazing reflection to be able to put in, in that light of what you would have previously been doing on a Friday night. So, even the higher levels of gratitude that you're here. And I mean, I can't agree more. I say it all the time, better to disappoint someone else with a no than disappoint yourself with a yes. I think we really generally tend to be people pleasers in certain ways. And so I would love to know, you know, if you're willing to talk about it, to just go right into the deep end um, about your journey with mental health and addiction, because I know you have four values that you kind of live by and I feel like that has come as a result of the journey that you've been on
1: yeah the story is it's hmm first of all I guess the thing is there's nothing more powerful than someone's story and I feel as though I spent so much of my life feeling shameful of a lot of my story and shame damn near killed me most of my life it is interesting when I go back and reflect on where I was that I have an incredibly twisted sense of gratitude because obviously it has brought me to where I am today but there's a great line that says all it takes is a beautiful fake smile to hide an injured soul and those were the words of the late Robin Williams Mm. and that always resonated with me because I grew up small town Saskatchewan and I excelled in athletics and academics, and I was always seen with a smile on my face. But obviously, as we know, just because someone is smiling does not mean that they are happy. And when I look back, my challenges with mental illness really started in grade eight, body dysmorphic disorder. I had a hell of a time with image. I avoided mirrors at all costs for 13 years. I didn't know why I was thinking such thoughts in my head We like, you know, Callie, we didn't talk about things like mental health. I didn't know what that word even was. And so what ended up happening is I just smiled on the outside, but on the inside, there was just a lot of pain. And the problem was that I had no idea how to talk about my pain. And therefore, I was the one who suffered more than anyone else. And that was the theme, I guess, that played out for so long, just hiding behind that mask. And as the challenges escalated, I just kind of withdrew and isolated. And I was always fascinated with alcohol, because it allowed me to escape a lot of the pain. And I guess that's at the root of addiction, isn't it, Callie, where it's logical to want to leave pain behind in exchange for pleasure. That's it. And I I left home at 16 for a private Mennonite school, which was a great experience. Um, And then I went off to Holland at age 18 for a work exchange program. And that's where things went nuts i mean uh, you take a kid from a small conservative mennonite village you put him in a place like holland and that's where wow like i ran away from my host family i got into the wrong crowd uh and then it was just a, a lot of years of self-destruction and harm and the short and sweet is eventually while it was hard to do so i was able to get Help from formal professionals. But then what followed was years of well, oh, so many labels, so many labels from psychiatrists, 30 different mental health professionals, actually more, 12 pharmaceutical pills in six years. And I was a alcoholic, compulsive gambler, struggled with self-harm. Um, and you know, Callie, the whole time I'm functioning to some degree. And What ended up happening is when I was teaching at a junior high school in Edmonton, uh, I was teaching a special ed class and I just my body was done. I walked out of the classroom and I just fell in the hallway. And that was one of those catalysts for change, I guess, where I realized there has to be more to life than this hell that I'm leading. There just, there just has to be. And I started to embrace that vulnerability equaled strength. I started to understand the power of voice. And as soon as I started to talk about some of my pain, I felt better. Well, of course I did because emotions are energy. And I was able to get myself into a lot of different support groups. And the value of that is I started to hear my story through their story. And because of that, I realized, what? Like, I'm not alone in this. And that's a powerful thing. And getting back to story, As soon as I started to share my story, not only did I feel better, but people are starting to say those words like me too, connection, just like that. Because as a compulsive gambler, there were no other people who were in the support groups that were young males. And I always said, like, there's got to be others. And so I actually marched into an organization in Edmonton, Problem Gambling Resource Network. And I said, can I meet with the executive director? And he was there, I shook his hand and I said, I'm Al. Let me be a face and voice to this. So the director's name was uh, Ray. And Ray started to pay me $75 to go to schools, jails, treatment centers. And I started to tell my story. That's how the whole speaking thing started like 15 years ago. And then it was just, uh, wow, arrived. Like I got a whole new family. I made a move to move in with a a woman who had two kids, Tanya, and she she embraced me and they all loved me for me. And that was that was the foundation for everything that has unfolded since then,
0: Kelly. Connection, so much of it connection with yourself, connection with others, relating to others. And I mean, I appreciate you sharing that so much because you're right. Coming from small town Saskatchewan and being a young male and being a young male. I think, struggling with body dysmorphia, which is, I think, something even more specific because we generally tend to assume that more females struggle with that or openly talk about it than males, which is not accurate. I can imagine there's so much shame in you feeling completely alone when in reality, we know you definitely weren't the only one. You were just not talking about it. Nobody's talking about it. So everybody feels as though they're the only one. Hundred
1: percent, and that that's a lonely place to be, where you feel as though even if you put a voice to it, nobody would understand you. So therefore, you silence yourself. And furthermore, the shame for me was rooted in abuse, sexual abuse, which, good God, I had no clue. I had no clue that that was in there until I finally left this life of destruction behind, and I was in a position of power and had supports and the the body. And mine finally said, okay, I think Al's ready. And um, then it was just buckle up and it was hard. It was, it was so hard, but it was also a piece of the puzzle as to why I hated self so much. And I, I can speak pretty comfortably about that now, but wow, was it hard at the beginning? Because as soon as I talked about it, I, I was, I was just so sick. And I just, you know, the short and sweet is this there is really no logical reason why I should be alive today after the life that I've led, other than I guess I just feel like I'm here to carry a message. And one of those is definitely around helping men um, be vulnerable and finding voice. Of course, everyone, but there's a special place for men because of what I've gone through and how many men I meet who are, who continue to carry that emotional baggage for so long. Um, So yeah, you know, the story piece and looking back, hmm, it's humbling.
0: It's overwhelming. uh, It's hard, but wow, gratifying. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you for sharing because I think you're right. There's just so much There's an, there is still an added stigma, I think, to men's mental health, you know, which is so devastating. And I wonder if when you were younger, I know you mentioned you not sharing what you were going through, you were making you were suffering more than anyone else was part of that, protecting those around you from having to deal with what you were experiencing. I feel like oftentimes we're not sharing because we feel like we're protecting the people that love us by not allowing them to know we're suffering.
1: Yeah, and I think I tried my best to hide it, but obviously you can only hide things for so long and people know. But what I also found is that people didn't know what to do or what to say, and therefore they didn't say anything. Now, the message that we get then is we internalize it and we feel like they don't care. So one of the key things for me is when I do the keynotes and the talks, it's essential to just teach people. First and foremost, silence is not the answer. Like if you think that there's a problem there probably is and it demands some kind of attention and we kind of walk through um, the approach. And it's also, when we know better, we do better, right? And information is truly power. So
0: we're moving the right way. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, a really great point because I say this frequently in in what I do in these podcasts, working with clients, I might not always know the right thing to say, but I will be actively trying to learn. And if that means being educated by whoever I'm having a conversation with, then we both leave that conversation being better for it. But I think we're so scared of saying, The wrong thing or offending someone, we're prone to that silence, which is so dangerous. So, that is something so great to highlight. And something that really stood out to me, which I think is a beautiful thing, is that even when you were approaching what maybe you, I don't know if you would consider it your rock bottom, but I think there's a big metaphor of you kind of physically breaking down outside of the classroom being that turning point that you were still teaching and you were still, you have always seemed to have this some sort of passion or inclination to be teaching and sharing and and helping others so how did you how did you get to that point in terms of teaching despite all that you were going through personally how did i get to how did i get to actually physically teaching and carrying on through society yeah well and just professionally and what was that like because i feel like there must have been some front stage backstage self to be showing up and almost performing in, in a way, if, if that's how you felt or you can clarify. Yeah. Well,
1: that's exactly it. It's, it's, it's exhausting
0: wearing the mask all the
1: time. And what I find interesting is I do a lot of work around suicide and I do talking circles so that people can just have a safe space to talk openly. And what I find really interesting, and this happened last week once again, where the feedback was of all people, I thought that he was the last one that would ever die by suicide. And repeatedly, we hear this: "I never saw it coming. How could this have happened?" And I, and that that fits for me because I I did a really good job of hiding it. I mean, physically, I was very gaunt. I had lost so much weight. I was having a lot of seizures, but I I masked it so well. And the problem is that as a society, we we think that we know we feel like we know the people around us really well and I feel like if we were actually to think about that deeper we probably know very little uh about others around us and when I look back the people closest to me had really no clue of the magnitude of my struggles they knew that I was struggling but you know they didn't know the The depth. So, what I learned is that the mask serves a purpose, right? Um, But we have to give ourselves permission to remove it and give ourselves permission to feel. That right there was the catalyst for me where I understood that feeling leads to healing. And I gave myself permission to go there because before that, it was always anger. And that was my defense mechanism.
0: Don't make me go within. Yeah, those, but again, and even with talking about addicts and and having that mask, I think we also have a stereotype of what we believe an addict looks like, or someone who is struggling. I'm even, this was just a great, I'm trying to work on my language. I don't want to use the language of an addict. So, you know, these conversations are really important for me to do a better job with that. But, you know, someone who's um, using a substance or behavior in a way that's starting to become self-sabotaging. We often have an image in our minds of what that looks like. So for example, you going to the support group for gambling and not having someone who looks like you, how does someone show up and be comfortable? So I can't imagine the level of vulnerability that took, especially in, in the beginning. So kudos to you. What do you feel like was the initial catalyst for you to be able to start talking about things and to allow yourself that ability to speak because I know you had kind of mentioned you had a little bit of a breakdown and then started seeking some professional help did you start with therapy did you have like an intake experience where did you go for help
1: yeah boy the start of that was rough because as is often the case it is a person of support who encourages the individual to get help and that was my mom who's like you have to go do something you just have to And I was not in a good place. And for whatever reason, I I think I just felt like there has to be a better way, because I just was in that place of hell. And unfortunately, that first experience was rough. I I, like this was 20 years ago, I didn't know where to go. I went to a walk in clinic. And I just remember being very, very embarrassed. And uh, it was humiliating, because he didn't even look at me. He just it was like, do you cry? Are you eating? Are you sleeping? But it was just reading off a checklist and check, check. And there was, I just felt like I wasn't being seen and I wasn't being heard or understood. And then he gave me a piece of paper with a prescription and I left and I, that was the journey of my, you know, 12 medications in six years. Uh, so that's how that started. No conversations, no other supports. I lived with three other guys as if I'm going to tell them where I was. And so it just further, I, yeah, I didn't talk to anyone about that because that was just very hard. Um, What happened, I guess, is over time, the more that I talked about my pain, the better I felt, which makes sense because I would say that to heal is to thaw. And the more that we can get some of that darkness out, the more room we're going to make for light. And I felt that. And so I bought into that and I started to, well, trust is a hard word uh, for me, but I let my walls down, I guess. One of the game changers was a, a professor, a teacher. When I was at the University of Alberta, there was a professor by the name of Ian McNeil who approached me after a lecture that he was giving. And I'm a student with like 300 others in a lecture theater. And he comes up to me after, and he says, come to my office, let's talk. And I was like, why? I've talked to you a handful of times, what is this? Like that was left field and uh, he left it there. And, you know, when we're struggling with our mental health challenges or addictions, or even, in general, we often have a very small window, right? Where we're willing to act. And that window was open for whatever reason on that afternoon and I met with him, I went into his office and he was sitting in a chair and he points to this other chair and he just says, have a seat. And, and I found his approach interesting because he leaned forward and he said, how are you doing today, Alan? And you think about that because every day it's like, how are you doing? Good. It's robotic. It's meaningless. It changes when you use the person's name and when you put the context of like today or now, but more importantly is he, he was leaning forward and he was engaged and it was all compassion. And, and what he did is he created that space where I felt like I felt safe. And I just, I just went there. I was like, you want to know okay and I just blah a lot of pain and he just listened 10 minutes probably I just talked and at the end what was interesting is that he understood that we all want power and we all want control and so he says are you happy I was like Ian Ian no I'm not happy and he says well what are you going to do about it so then at that point, he offers resources and that, that was where it changed because I started to realize if I want to succeed, I have to start acting on what's around me. And I got note takers. I, uh, I got to write an exam in a room by myself and uh, I got tutors and I got funding for that. That was really hard, Cali, because I was the guy who was top of the class Um, and all of a sudden with mental health and addictions, I was like, at one point I dropped out, but that's where things turned around because somebody believed in me and somebody kept checking in and opened the door to
0: resources. And I started to use them. Yeah. Well, and just how powerful for, like you said, on that day to just ask, like, truly, how are you and say it with intention and care and I think about that so often, how we can have that change in the trajectory of someone's path by really listening and tuning in and being aware, right, to the people around us, how powerful that in a room of 300 people, he could recognize that you needed to have a conversation. 100%. You know what's
1: wild, Callie? I was doing a keynote three weeks ago in Alberta, and there's probably 700 educators there. And a guy comes up to me after, cause I told that story and a guy comes up to me after and he says, Ian McNeil changed my entire life as well. No way. And he goes and shares the story uh, cause he was about to drop out and Ian. And what's significant too, to what you said is every day we're in a position to impact people. We rarely hear back
0: about the impact that we had, right? Wow. Well, I can't imagine the quantity and depth of impact that you've had on people since you've been in a place to be able to share your experiences and the the tools, you know, like sharing your story is one thing, but sharing actionable tools on top of it of how can we be better and do better and ask the right questions and you know I think that's something we are also scared of saying the wrong thing so having someone to show up and be willing to provide those tools is such a gift
1: well thank you I appreciate that and I I completely agree with you the story is powerful and when I started years ago it was more just blah I just talked and it was mostly about my story nothing more nothing less. I felt better. It helped a bit. But exactly like you said, Callie. over time, you realize that what people need are tools, tangible tools, things that they can um, apply right away. And exactly like you said, otherwise people will continuously be silent because especially in the context of mental health, the fear is if I say the wrong thing, will it push them over the edge? How the hell do we talk about suicide? And that's a key thing that I address in pretty much every keynote. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I would love if there's some takeaways that you would like to share on how do we talk about that? I mean, every day, it feels like, I shouldn't say every day, on a frequent enough basis on my Facebook, I see somebody that has at least been within kind of the six degrees of, of separation has died by suicide and, you know, how crazy for it to be that common. And so how do we broach those conversations?
1: Yeah, I think first of all, we have to collectively understand that silence is not the answer. And we already talked about that, right? When I was in grade 11 and my challenges with mental illness really escalated and all the signs are there, there was not one educator, there was not one person who approached me And what's the message we get when we're in pain and nobody approaches us? Nobody cares. So that's the buy-in right there. Let's just all collectively agree that from this point forward, we won't be silent. So next comes action. And I think we often overthink this part and it can be as simple as this. If you approach someone who's struggling and say, I don't mean to pry. I just wanna let you know I'm concerned. And I just wanna let you know, I'd be more than happy to listen. If you ever need to talk, that, that's it. And that's, that's everything. Because all that we're trying to do is create a space where they feel comfortable enough to release some of those emotions. We don't have to be formal counselors. Elders always remind us that we have two ears and one mouth. It's not our job to fix, but allow them to be free from some of that shame. And here's a question, Callie. What percentage of people, in your opinion, would be active listeners, like people who actually are good at listening. What's the number?
0: Oh no. oh no, I don't know. I think people probably think that they are active listeners more than they really truly are, but I'm sure it's very low. And I'm sure I'm guilty of it too, right? We get very caught up in our own busyness. Low, is there a number?
1: I have, so I've done about 10 keynotes in the last three weeks, and I consistently asked this question, and it ranged between 5 and 10 on average. Wow. And now you think about that, because what is it that you want when you're in pain? I I did not want to be fixed. There's three things that I want when I reflect on it. I wanna be seen, I wanna be heard, and I wanna be supported. That's it. And, And I think that if we can understand that it's not our job to fix, but if we can create that space where people feel comfortable enough to talk and then we just listen, then we're moving the right way because how often has it not happened where you have felt uh, overwhelmed stressed out like you've had a lot on your plate and you go to a person of trust and you just talk like you just talk 15 minutes you talk and they listen at the end of those 15 minutes you're like oh I feel better why would you feel better essentially they did nothing but essentially they did everything right because they allowed you to be free from that emotion and at that point You can then offer them resources while still understanding that whether or not they access those resources is completely out of your control. It's surrendering to the things that we cannot control. I I lost my best friend to suicide. And it's um, this understanding that there really is only so much that you can say and that there really is only so much that you can
0: do. Hmm. Hmm. I can't imagine losing someone that close to you, let alone by suicide. And I think that as survivors of those who we have lost by suicide, there can be a massive amount of guilt. So that's a great allowance to give everyone that there is only so much you can do, even if you've offered the active listening and the resources and, and everything else. And I mean, to you know, that reminder, it's a great reminder for me too, when you're asking someone how they are to really mean it and and check in and listen accordingly and to notice those changes in the people around you. You know, we can't be responsible for everyone, but we can sure do our best and often a better job than we're doing. So I would love to know how, how these experiences have gotten you to the values that you live by now, which I feel like you've kind of highlighted some beautiful pillars that we could all take from, which are authenticity, passion, connection, and transformation. How do you feel like this journey has gotten you to those guiding values?
1: I feel like because I spent so much of my life hiding, being authentic is the most liberating place to be. I, I would always lie. I would always manipulate because that's what we do in our addiction to Get what it is that our brain says that we need, and at the end of the day, I think we all have intuition, right? We can all see if someone actually is being their authentic self or if they are acting. Maybe in the workplace, they're not the same as they are under the roof, or or when you see someone on a stage, they're not the same on and off the stage. Like I am me, and that feels really, really good. No more hiding. Uh, and what else I find interesting is. I do a lot of work with leaders as do you and the word that comes up repeatedly is what people want from leaders and what people want from others in general is for people to be authentic, authentic, like don't, don't be someone that you're not. That's, that's not only liberating for self, but it's liberating for others because then we don't have to second guess. Right. And I mean, purpose, passion, We all want that. There was a moment for me that was a game changer around around passion um, and purpose because I was driving back from an event and I don't usually listen to podcasts or anything, but Dr. Wayne Dyer uh, had a, there was a, a CD that I had in there from Dr. Wayne Dyer. And there's this line, he says, whatever your passion is, I promise you, you can make a living doing it. And I was like, well, that makes sense because why else would creator God, whatever word you put to that, why else would he put that passion within us? And right after I heard that, I called the treatment center where I was working and I said, I'm out. Uh, Thanks for everything. Learned a lot. I'm out. And I put way more time and energy into speaking. And then three years ago, uh, I walked from counseling and teaching at a college to do this full time no guarantees, but a trust. And I think that when you know, you
0: know. I agree. And as an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like that's kind of the approach that I've taken. And I mean, a saying that actually a a podcast guest uh, once shared was burn the boats. When you put in that resignation and have no quote unquote backup plan, I think you most often swim because you don't give yourself, you know, the option of anything else. And you know what, I think that's something that was really beautiful that COVID maybe shared, um, although lots of hardships was there's no sure thing in any industry. And so life's too short not to pursue the passion in, in whatever form. And I mean, there can be stepping stones to it as it seems like you took, you know, slowly getting to the point where eventually you go all in so how long has it been that you've been fully embracing this all in three and a half years
1: it was it was probably yeah six seven months before COVID happened and there that that was hard because you know with Tanya and and the kids um we were all in and all of a sudden every single thing was wiped but you, you either go left or you go right. It's that proverbial fork in the road. And, and while it was challenging, it was the best thing that ever could have happened. We often have a hard time with change as humans. I definitely do. But even just learning this virtual space, doing podcasts, doing virtual events, the world is at our fingertips. And repeatedly, I'm sure you heard this too, Callie. people would always say, I just want things to go back to normal. I just want things to go back to normal. But then we miss out on the lessons that we learned. And I guarantee we all learned a lot through our discomfort. But sometimes we just choose not to, to look at it, or we, we hold on, you know, leaving claw marks, basically. Uh, But yeah, three, three and a half years. And That that was interesting, too, because what it's kind of like nobody just jumps as an entrepreneur. You know, I wouldn't recommend that. And I'm sure you wouldn't either. It's a process. It's kind of like one foot on the dock, one on the boat for a while. And what helped me make the jump, I was doing an event in Buffalo Narrows in the north right before I made the jump. And I woke up early and I went for a walk and I was like, what what's happening to me? I I I feel like there's change of brewing. And I felt like it was time to just leave the college where I was teaching and do speaking full time. And it was really, really strong. And I came around the corner and an eagle was soaring above the lodge. And I was like, OK, I understand. And I just cried. And I called Tanya right away. I called my wife and I said, hey, here's what's going on. And she said, OK. I called the dean right right away. And I said, Hey, we need to talk when I get back to the city.
0: And that was it, Callie. Wow. You knew it was time. Yeah. And I think we all do,
1: right? We all have that intuition when you know, you know, the, the, the difference is
0: sometimes we just have to do things afraid. Oh, well, I think that's a great point is we can, I think we expect that when we know change, Is meant to happen, it will feel easy, which is not the case because it's more comfortable to stay, I think, off like generally in a lesser situation, but when we know what to expect there versus something that might bring us to a better position, but we don't know what's on the other side. Like that fear, it's why people stay in bad habits and self sabotaging and toxic relationships with self and others and substances all the time because it's at least you know what's there, right? You know what to anticipate. And it's so scary to not know exactly what's on the other side, but such a necessary point. And I mean, congratulations, because that is a huge accomplishment at any time, let alone with two of those years being, (laughs) you know, forced to be virtual and and mid-pandemic. I feel like that had to have been a test of your belief in yourself and your purpose and your passion.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, right back at you as an entrepreneur. I think it was a time Uh, I had the mindset that this was a time to plant seeds, and the harvest will come later. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't take my eye off the prize. And I stuck with with passion and the values and uh, trust. I, I hear three words all the time. Trust the process, trust the process. And I'm I'm far from religious, but I'm very spiritual. And I very much feel guided in that it's like the message is simple for me, just just use me. I have very limited time here and so i always ask for open ears and eyes that i can just have new
0: opportunities to be used november is diabetes awareness month in canada each day 640 canadians are diagnosed with diabetes that is one person every three minutes Sweet and Sprouted is helping make life easier for diabetics and people living the sugar-free lifestyle like me with great grocery options. For years, there weren't a lot of tasty sugar-free options, but that has definitely changed and they want you to try it out. Sweet and Sprouted is offering our listeners 10% off your next order with the code wellness10. That's 10% off at sweetandsprouted.com using the promo code wellness10. I think the uh, trust the process and the metaphor of planting seeds is so powerful because I say it all the time to clients whether we're working on mindset or you know physical self we don't plant a garden and you know dig it up every 3 days to see if the seeds are sprouting we just keep watering it and, right with that right. blind faith that roots are getting deeper and it's all going to come and you know and However, many weeks or months, you'll eventually see the fruits of those labors. But, you know, we we really struggle to do that with ourselves, I think, when it comes to certain habits. And I appreciate that you mentioned spirituality, because I think when we talk about, you know, addiction and specifically recovery from alcohol use, religion often comes up as, as part of the conversation in way, some way, shape, or form. A lot of that, I think, based on the roots of like Alcoholics Anonymous, which had a big, you know, or does have a religious component. So what was your experience like with that as you were working through recovery with alcoholism? Did you feel like the spiritual side came naturally to you? Was it something that was always there? Was it something that you learned through this journey of healing? I think it was something that was always
1: there. I think it's there for all of us, if we so choose. And I think that it's sacred space, isn't it? Because uh, things that are spiritual often don't need to be articulated, because they're for us, they're for ourselves. And unfortunately, with organized religion comes a lot of hypocrisy, in my experience, and being forced into something. And um, I think that the spirituality piece for me was everything. When I got hired at the Saskatchewan Indian Institute of Technologies, which is an indigenous college, it was probably 10 years ago, I remember thinking, "Hmm, I think I'm home because it just all made sense to me. The harmony, the balance, the connection to medicines and just no hierarchy. We're all the same working with elders that fit. And so for me, that was something that I grabbed onto, um, respecting that we all have our own thoughts and beliefs and that what works for one won't work for another, but just have that mutual respect and the open mind served me well because things like Reiki, understanding energy that has been imperative to my healing. I'm an empath. If, if you are in pain initially as a counselor, uh, as a coach, whatever, it was like, let me take that from you. But then I got sick and learning where I carry it, how to let go has been huge. The spiritual piece, I think it was Ram Dass who said, you know, like all we're doing is we're just walking each other home I love that. and that's powerful. And even with Justin, my best friend who died by suicide, the veil between the physical and the spiritual world is so thin. And in many ways, I'm actually closer to him now than when he was here physically. Like, I did not see that coming. But the spiritual peace and the eagles that repeatedly show up for me, you know, are like that, that is all very sacred to me. And I found my way. And I always hope that that people can just find their own way and that people around them can just respect their decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that Ram Das quote. And uh, I think we really overlook how much spirituality and mindfulness. And again, I think those terms mean it is such a broad spectrum for everyone that means something completely different. But you know, just generally considering how much merit those focuses have when we talk about physical health and mental health, which are, I mean, so intertwined, like, you know, the veil between those two are, is so thin or, or non-existent. So, you know, I am thrilled to have these conversations all the time on the podcast, and I'm trying to make sure we're talking about mental health all the time. You know, this isn't something that we only talk about for this week or this month or this day or, you know, more, November. but of course it is you know, the month of November. So I think it's just perfect timing to share some incredible stories. And I'd love to know why, well, first of all, do you still feel as though the stigma is continuing to be there where it's more difficult for men to talk about mental health? And if so, why that continues to be the case?
1: Well, 100%, the stigma remains. The difference is that more and more people are saying, we're tired of this, we're tired of wearing the mask, we're tired of seeing people around us die. And they are buying into this idea that vulnerability is strength. They're understanding that there's nothing manly about suffering in silence. And thankfully, more and more people are stepping up and sharing their story, their lived experience. And vulnerability, therefore, will breed more vulnerability. And the, the biggest thing is this: the next generation is always watching. Like as adults, kids are always watching us. And if if we cannot give ourselves permission to be vulnerable or shed a tear, reach out for help. Why would they? Uh, I was doing an event recently and we called it creating moccasin trails because essentially that's it. We're, We're trying to pave the way. And I do not want the next generation to have to go through what I went through. We have four boys, you know, interesting. I don't, I don't want them to go through some of those challenges. There's a lot of work to be done but hands down, we're moving the right way. Even in the fire service industry, I was doing an event in Niagara Falls a couple of days ago, and that's a culture that is built on toughness, but there's a lot of individuals who are now embracing that it's okay to talk about their pain. They're redefining what it means to be strong. And I read an excerpt from the president of the Ontario Association of Fire Chiefs, who talked about his challenges with PTSD and he understood that he had to start putting a voice to it. And he talked about his fears, but then he talked about how he was actually met with compassion, which surprised him. And after I read this excerpt, everyone in the room roared and applauded. And I think it just further proved
0: that if you are willing to put a voice to your pain, you will be embraced. I think that's an incredible point. You know, anyone who is in a position of leadership, I think that, you know, due to societal pressure and what we've seen historically, I think there is this expectation of, you know, showing no vulnerability. It's just, you know, blind faith and strength and, you know, showing no no weakness. That mm. is not only dangerous for the person, but for everyone that they're leading right because it is reflecting what that there's no room for vulnerability so I mean what an incredible gift to be giving your children and everyone else that you come into contact with to allow that space for vulnerability and lead by example and when we talk about I mean generational trauma comes up so much when we talk about mental health and when we talk about addiction like trauma being the root of so much addiction you know these conversations are how we hope to continue to minimize that over time. And so I know you made a really you kind of made a, a beautiful point where you're saying you know you're here to really focus on mental health and in general of course you focus on men's mental health so how professionally when you have these conversations do you help women empower their health as well? do you kind of decipher when you have these conversations do you talk both to groups of men and women? I'd love to know how you broach that because I'm always kind of, you know, working to bridge that gap myself personally, how do I be talking generally? Do I need to be talking generally or talking more specifically, you know, mental health is mental health? I think mental health is mental health. At the end of the day, regardless of gender, we all want the same thing,
1: right? The the approach does not change regardless of gender. We all, at the end of the day, wanna be seen, heard and supported. And to get those things, we all have to be vulnerable. I really hummed and hawed about the marketing uh, I did a whole rebrand, you know, a year ago, and I was like, do I just go after the men and mental health piece? Because that's what the last book was on. And collectively, we decided not to do that. Therefore, I only have one keynote that is specific to that, which is often used in the trades or where it's male dominated construction, oil and gas. But even so, what I th- I found interesting is that when we wrote the book on men and mental health, we knew that it was going to be women who bought it more than men. And that was the case because men are still very stubborn and reluctant to pick up a book that has words like mental health on it. Women started to give feedback saying that they read it because they wanted to better understand the men in their life. But there are also a lot of women who read it and said that they could relate to some of those character traits that are often exhibited Um, more predominantly by people who identify as male. So I think, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do, it is generalized. But if I have the audience where it's predominantly men, I'll focus more on, you know, the like our go to is anger. We're angry, we're irritable. But what 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 I learned over time is that anger is the secondary emotion. And sadness is often underneath it. But being a man, I wasn't taught that it was okay to be sad. And so it's the awareness piece. Right. Yeah.
0: I I mean, I think that's a great point. And hopefully over time, as the, you know, level of stigma continues to come down, there's no need to, you know, differentiate at all, even if that still remains. So what did you envision your career would be prior to this? I mean, you've clearly had many iterations professionally along the way, but now being a, you know, a professional speaker and an author, um, did you ever envision this for yourself? Oh, never. (laughs) I I, I saw none of this coming. Nobody,
1: nobody as a kid says one day, I hope that I can struggle with mental illness. No, no kid says one day, I hope that I can become an addict. And in the same way, I never said one day, I hope that I can stand on stages and t- like, I hate public speaking. I hate it. I was physically sick the first five years. Yeah. Like people often think that I just am a natural and I know it was awful. It was awful. Uh, but like we said before, sometimes you just have to do things afraid. I, I knew that the outcome would be worth it. Mm-hmm. And eventually like anything, the unfamiliar becomes familiar. But
0: no, I saw none of this coming. Wow. I would never have imagined. I mean, I do think that for anybody, like public speaking, even the biggest extrovert, I think generally public speaking is still challenging in the beginning, but I would never have guessed that it was that uncomfortable for you. And honestly, I want to say thank you because how many people have benefited from you being able to face that fear? Like, what a beautiful thing. And if we all were able to do that and are able to do that, you know, moving forward to to be vulnerable in that way, what we can share with others. So what did you envision then academics, teaching previous? Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Both my parents
0: were teachers.
1: I went into teaching, you know, uh, I got my degree in teaching. Uh, I lasted 40, 43 seconds, teaching kindergarten. I realized pretty quick. That is not (laughs) for me. And then even high school and junior high, I did it for a bit. And I was like, Nope. So then I did, I taught colleges for, a a long time and and really enjoyed it. Uh, But, but then I realized I can have a bigger impact just through keynotes and, and, and that
0: avenue opposed to just at a college. That's amazing. Good for you. I mean, and I do think it's you, anyone who wants to teach anything in whatever way, shape or form, you know, the, at the, at the root of it, you want to help people. So you're just doing such a, a different version of the same thing, I would say. And I'd love to know, especially because I work with so many parents and I know so many parents listen to this podcast. Is there any advice that you could share for starting to have these conversations about mental health with children? And Because how old are your boys? Four boys. How do you broach these yeah. conversations and encourage it in the home and at what age and in what way? Yeah, two of our kids have already left the nest.
1: Um, and then our youngest are 11 and 12 the difference is this we i think that one of the greatest gifts parents can give their kids is teach them how to feel teach them that it's okay to go within teach them that it's okay to talk about their emotions and then as parents we can give them strategies and then when our kids say, you know, ah, I'm feeling a little anxious, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, the question becomes, well, what are you going to do about it? Because you have the skill set. And, and it's empowering them to then act on it, and encourage them to put a voice to their pain to always talk that silence, again, is not the answer. And I think as parents, it's paying attention to our intuition. If we think that there's a problem, there probably is, it's not shying away. From a very hard conversation about mental health suicide is hard to talk about as a parent but but i think that we often fear asking the question are you feeling suicidal because we fear what yeah that answer and we fear the answer but we already talked about this like elders say two ears and one mouth for a reason so if we ask the question and they say, yes, we literally just have to bite our lip and listen. Like often we think we understand, no, we don't, we cannot. No matter what the context is, we cannot. And for that reason, if you respond with, help me to understand, that's powerful. Just, just create the space where they can talk, be free from some of those emotions. And more often than not, that's all that an
0: individual needs the space to just be free from that. Yeah. I do. You Have you read any of Gabor Matei's work? A little bit. I don't read. Oh, or listen. Yeah. I mean, so he used some language that just really resonated with me in his book, which is based upon addiction in the realm of hungry ghosts. And he, he says, lead with compassionate curiosity. And I think that that can be a good reminder to come back to, like, keep asking asking questions and the two years, one mouth for a reason. You don't necessarily have to lead with a response, but continuing to ask. And, you know, as parents, I feel like there's a, a responsibility of if parents aren't learning how to manage and, and deal and feel emotions and be vulnerable, how do we create children who are able to do that as well? So again, these conversations are so so brilliant to that. And you have had so many projects going on in the three and a half years that you've been doing this from speaking to writing and now a clothing line. I would love for you to talk ah, about this project. Good Lord above. That <laughs> has been wear- a project. <laughs> oh, tell me. Okay. tell. Well, tell me. I'm, per- I'm personally and professionally now invested in this.
1: <laughs> well, how it started is like this, this bracelet, right? Born Resilient before covid when i would do these keynotes and travel to different communities i would just leave piles of bracelets and people would wear these born resilient bracelets and send me messages saying they wear it because it helps them to fight the whole point is to help people to buy into the fact that they've survived 100 of their most challenging days don't sell yourself short what tools do you use that help you to fight because at the end of the day life is hard i really find life hard so the the bracelet was just one way to arm oneself. And once COVID hit my wife, Tanya, and I figured, wow, let's just do a clothing line that allows people to embrace their resilience. So same thing, we called it born resilient. And uh, yeah, it has been a journey, but it has been very humbling, you know, to be in a position where like a guy, I know he just got diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And so to be able to just send a hoodie, and say hey you know maybe this can help you to draw some strength whatever like it's it was never about making money it was it was about helping people to fight and um it's been very very
0: fulfilling and very uh rewarding i mean that's brilliant i mean i'm just it's so refreshing to know that again you're following your passion and giving such a gift to others by doing that. Well, congratulations and way to go Thanks. on. The board or two. <laughs> I mean, talk about resilient, not only in your personal life to have gone through so much and, you know, to share it with others, but professionally, you know, the resilience to move through all these steps to authorship and publishing. And, you know, I can't imagine the massive undertaking. So I'm grateful on behalf of myself and everyone that you're, you know, sharing this, with all of us. And I would love to ask you some quick, rapid fire questions to wrap things up. Um, One of them being who would you consider your biggest role model? My biggest role model. That's a very interesting question. I would say,
1: you know, Tanya, my wife is my saving grace and is my rock Uh, without her I'm, I'm not vertical. Uh, when I moved in, she believed in me, I think more than I believed in myself and learning from her has
0: been, uh, uh, pretty monumental. Oh, that's beautiful. That's amazing. What is Mm -hmm. the best advice you've ever received? I think to just be you,
1: you know, it's very simple, but it's, it's, uh, It goes back to what we talked about before, Callie, the authenticity. If you just embrace that you are who you are and you don't have to perform or act. And if you can understand that at some point you will naturally attract the people that you're supposed to. And you don't have to fight to fit in. And that's hard for kids and adolescents, but especially as adults, like when you can just be you, that's liberating. The problem is that often society has a hard time accepting us for who we really are. Maybe family has a hard time and just carving your own path and sticking to your own, you know, values,
0: whatever those are, I think is massive. It's easy to say it's hard to do. Mm-hmm. It is. But, and again, I think, you know, this provides opportunity for people to connect with others that are maybe more similar to them when they don't have them in their immediate sphere, which is one of the things I think social media can be so beneficial for as well. You know, if you don't have those people around you, I know you said you're not a big reader. So best resource you'd recommend?
1: I don't know. I I mean, that's obviously unique to the individual. I feel like a lot of people say there's just nothing out there. There's no resources. Resources are everywhere. We're only alone when we choose to be alone. I don't have a specific answer to that one. I would just say like Google is a valuable resource where whatever it is that
0: you're seeking, you can find answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Being willing to try. And uh, do you have a personal mantra or words that you live by? I feel like you've shared a few brilliant ones already, but is there one that you'd like to highlight?
1: I really like, and I think this is why I trademarked it in in the brand was just be seen, heard and supported through our conversations, making sure that we allow people to feel as though they truly are being seen, that we actively listen, and that we support them in the best way can without
0: losing ourselves in their journey. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I even want to say something that comes up for me is allowing ourselves to be seen, heard, and supported. Because I think often, you know, those people who put themselves in that place of, I don't know, would you say, t- like, toxic resiliency or something where you're just so unwilling to share, you know, when you're having the bad day and actually need to to share. So thank you for that. And last, but certainly not least for everyone who's going to want to find you and follow along with the great things you've got going mm-hmm. on. Where can they do that? Probably the best place, Callie, is
1: online. The website is www.allankailor.com. It's A-L-L-A-N-K-E-H-L-E-R.com. And
0: there's some resources on there or blogs. Otherwise, just good old Google, I guess. Yeah, we'll link everything. You've got a beautiful website. Your, I mean, talks are online and social media, everything. We'll make sure we link. And I just want to say truly, thank you personally and on behalf of everyone else. I know for a fact that this episode is really going to help a lot of people so I appreciate your time so much it's been an honor to have you on the podcast thanks Callie I appreciate you and thank you for creating the space to have the conversation it's my pleasure of course that's all the time we have together this week thank you so much for being here with Alan and I please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode every Sunday. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at KY Wellness. More details about all episodes can be found at kywellness.ca under the podcast tab. Don't forget to move your body, nourish your body, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. See you next week and keep yourself well.